That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, This Show is All About You. I'm welcoming back some longtime listeners of this show, and I'm welcoming new ones on our new home, uh, Kixie 880 AM in Seattle. So for those of you listening in on that station, thank you so much for joining me. And for those of you who are longtime listeners via podcast, really appreciate you coming along for the ride. And so um, I am J.D.K. Winnikin, and I am excited to spend this next hour with you uh, really talking about things that matter to a lot of us, uh, even if we don't always know it in the moment. And so um, this uh, just kind of give new listeners a sense of, of who I am, as, as was mentioned in the, uh, in the lead in there. I am a historian. Um, I'm a writer. I'm currently pitching a uh, alternate history fiction novel to publishers. Uh, and I like to really comment on just about anything I'm interested in. And I happen to be interested in a lot. But overall, what really I'm interested in is, is connecting with other people and talking about things that matter and uh, connecting in ways that improve all of our lives. And so um, I've moved over uh, to Kixie to do this for an hour because I really wanted to bring in guests uh, as well as just talk about my view on the world. And so uh, I'm going to introduce you really quickly uh, to the first guest. This was the only guest that made sense to start with uh, uh, when I moved to this format. Uh, this person uh, has been in my ear about everything I've been doing uh, for a really long time now. And, and every episode of my podcast uh, he's listened to and commented on within minutes of listening to it. He read my entire draft of my novel, which was 330,000 words <laughs> to start. And he read it on his phone, uh, <laughs> just on his phone, and commented after every chapter. And there were 30-some-odd chapters in, mm -hmm. in that book. And, uh, and really has been doing that uh, and really uh, showing up for me and uh, being supportive of me my entire life. So to not only introduce new listeners to me more effectively, but also to introduce everybody to one of my favorite people in the world, I decided my first guest was going to be my dad, Ken Winnikin. Hi, Dad. Hi. How you doing? I'm all right. It's a little weird being in here sitting in front of a... It, it is a little bit, a little yes, bit. <laughs> but not someplace I've been before. Okay. But, okay. Uh, well, yeah. you're, you, you're used to speaking to lots of people, though. You're a pastor for 50-some-odd years, right? Correct. All right. Yeah, but not usually with a microphone right in front of my face. Well, sure, <laughs> sure. But it's... And, uh, and they don't usually talk back to me, either. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, I'll try not to talk back to you. You know, uh, Lord knows I did that enough in my <laughs> life. Uh, but anyway, uh, everybody will get a chance. We're going to have a longer conversation with uh, with my dad, with Ken, uh, about a lot of different things uh, that uh, that hopefully you will be able to connect to. But what I'd like to do first uh, at the front of the show, I'm going to be uh, doing various segments here and there. I'd like to kick us off by taking a run through uh, what's been going on in the world in the last week in a segment that I'm tentatively calling what in the world should we be talking about? So let's go ahead and pick this up. Um, big, impressive lead-in uh, to that. Uh, for, I am a historian, and so uh, a lot of things that go on in the world I think about uh, historically, and certainly uh, at top of mind for my last handful of shows and uh, for all of us these days uh, is the war in Ukraine. So let's go ahead and start there. 
Yeah, everybody, the war in Ukraine unfortunately continues unabated, and certainly it is at the top of all of our minds uh, pretty much each day when we turn on the news. And that clip there uh, was uh, taken from a, uh, inside an apartment building in Ukraine that was hit by a Russian shell uh, just a few weeks ago, and that uh, there's a couple women in there, uh, and both of them uh, uh, yelling loudly about wondering where their, ki- their children were. And I play that at the front end because, you know, with all the big questions about uh, what Putin is up to and how is this going to resolve itself, uh, I like to keep everyone reminded that uh, everyday people are being affected the most uh, in all of this. And uh, over the last week, of course, the biggest news was that uh, Russia lost the flagship of their Black Sea fleet, uh, the Moskva, uh, named after the capital city, Moscow. And uh, the Russians, of course, said it happened because of an ammunition explosion, but they didn't talk about the cause. The Ukrainians claimed to have sunk uh, sunk it with a Neptune anti-ship missile or two. Uh, I tend to think that the Ukrainians, as the Pentagon has since uh, said, the, the Ukrainians are telling the truth on this one. Um, and not just because the Pentagon says so or the U- or Ukraine says so, but uh, Russia's retaliatory strikes against Kiev for the sinking of the Moskva, the Moskva uh, targeted the Neptune missile plants in Kiev. So not sure why Russia would actually choose to target those unless that was the reason for the ship being hit in the first place. Um, so sometimes uh, having to take a look at actions more than words, uh, particularly when it comes to, to what Russia is doing, uh, matters the most. Uh, it's worth noting, too, that is a big deal that uh, the Russians lost that ship. Uh, the, uh, it's not like they can just simply replace it. They don't have another ship just like it. And because of where it is in the Black Sea, the Black Sea has to be entered through the Mediterranean, Turkey, has the right to guards the isthmus that leads into the Black Sea, and they have already said they are not going to be allowing uh, Russian warships to be coming in from outside the Black Sea. So what role this has to play for uh, Russia in the long run or what this does for them in their uh, reorganized offensives in the east and the south uh, has yet to be seen. A couple other things to think about uh, as the Russians gear up for a new offensive in the east. Uh, As I've mentioned in previous shows, Putin is uh, really hearkening back to a mythologized version of World War II in Soviet history uh, to justify his actions. And while it could very well be as many as 17,000 Russian soldiers have been killed, this is a man who's operating uh, from a position that 27 million Russians killed in the Second World War uh, was an acceptable uh, amount of loss. And so if we're hoping that the uh, body count will get to him sooner rather than later, I would say probably not. All right, let's go ahead and move on to our second Story of the day. That is one of my favorite sounds anywhere because I love airplanes, as as you will find out if you don't know me already. Uh, but also, we are starting to be thinking about summer travel, uh, spring travel, and uh, just this morning, a court in Florida uh, struck down uh, the extension of the travel mask mandates uh, that were uh, extended by the federal government over the last few weeks. And so we'll see how that shakes out. If you have any of you been flying lately, you know, flying with a mask, uh, particularly if you're flying for a long time, uh, is not fun. Uh, at the same time, uh, the travel uh, numbers for uh, the United States and for other countries, uh, the hope is that they will be going up. But, of course, ticket prices are going up with them. Uh, and so inflation is playing a role uh, in that as well. And I find it really interesting is that uh, a lot of people are complaining, of course, about to the federal government about the price of gasoline uh, at the pump. And I understand why. Nobody seems to be complaining to them, though, about the rise in air prices, <laughs> even though it's from the same place. And, you know, it's worth it always reminds me that that uh, 
Airlines, as well as oil companies, are setting the prices themselves because they effectively police themselves with some outside supervision. Uh, and so it might be worth just remembering that if you're going to book travel plans, you might want to do it sooner rather than later because tickets are going to be going up in price. Uh, and to remember, that, too, that uh, inflation is what it is uh, and it isn't hasn't come out of nowhere. Uh, the checks that were given out in COVID effectively helped uh, produce some of this, as well as instability due to COVID and now a war. Uh, part of this is markets being markets. It's much easier to find somebody to blame, of course. But you can blame somebody all you want, but it may not be their fault. It may not be the truth. Okay, so let's take a look at our third story. It's just really important that people have the, both the, uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. That, of course, is Elon Musk talking last week about how he has made a pitch to buy Twitter, the massive social media platform that even if you don't use it, you've definitely heard of it. Now, I don't know if, unlike these, the first two stories, if this is a good news story or a bad news story. Um, but it really struck me as kind of funny because I was wondering things like, if he buys Twitter, um, will Twitter feeds just inexplicably heat up and take over our phones and maybe explode? Like sometimes his cars do. Uh, will, the, uh, will SpaceX astronauts be able to uh, tweet live from outer space? Uh, you know, when William Shatner went up... Um, not too long ago into space, uh, he tweeted, actually it was a preset tweet uh, before, while he was in space, but I'm wondering if they would do that. And I'm really hoping that if he does buy it, somebody opens a Twitter account for those reusable uh, rocket boosters that SpaceX uses that come back down so that the booster can just text BRB, tweet that, go up into space and come back and go, yep, see, I was back in a few minutes. Um, and of course, I'm just, I can't help but think of Howard Hughes when I think of Elon Musk. If any of you don't know anything about Howard Hughes, um, if I was ever to believe in reincarnation, it might be because I think Elon Musk might be reincarnated uh, Howard Hughes. That's just me. Okay, <laughs> so there's that. Now, how about some good news, some really quick good news stories? And Dad, chime in on this if you want to. Uh, in Southern <laughs> California last week, a woman was buying uh, lottery tickets and was accidentally bumped into by a rude customer, and she ended up by accident hitting the button for the wrong ticket and got it, and the guy didn't apologize and went on his way. And she went out to her car and scratched off the ticket and won $10 million. Wow, look at that. Yes, exactly. $10 million. <laughs> so sometimes when somebody's rude, it does pay off pretty well. Thanks, Eric. That was a perfect sound. Uh, elsewhere, in Scotland, Scotland reports that the forests in, in their country are the largest and the healthiest they've been in 900 years. And I have no idea why that is. <laughs> and I'm not sure the either. Scots do either. <laughs> but nevertheless, a little bit of good news. Uh, you know, we hear so much about environmental bad news, uh, but things are going well in Scotland with the greenery, it sounds like. All right. Uh, and then a, another good news story uh, a week or so ago, there were 42 kids in Israel who were on a school trip out near the Dead Sea and got lost. And they were found exclusively with the use of aerial drones. Now, because they weren't all in one group. They apparently all panicked and went in a number of different directions. So the uh, the local police had to find them with drones. But they did find them and returned them to their families uh, safely. So, yes, congratulations to those drone operators. Uh, you know. And it sounds like there's some reviews of kids' fundamentals need to happen. So anything jump out to you there, Dad? No. <laughs> just, just too busy Stay laughing? in the bus. <laughs> stay, stay in the bus. Stay in the bus. Okay. 
my one of my favorite stories of last week, of course, was last Friday was Jackie Robinson Day, the 75th anniversary of uh, Jackie Robinson breaking the so-called color barrier in Major League Baseball in 1947 to become the first uh, first black man to play in Major League Baseball. And that happened in part because it was the right thing to do. And the Dodgers owner at the time, Branch Rickey, wanted that color line broken, but it also made sense for the business of baseball. And uh, last last week, Friday, as they have for a number of years now, every base, Major League Baseball team playing, uh, all their players wore the number 42, which was Jackie Robinson's number. And that number has been retired by every team in Major League Baseball. So nobody can actually wear it during the season. And there were a number of tributes uh, to him. And so if you uh, if you have not had a chance to uh, take a look at any of Jackie Robinson's accomplishments or weren't a part of the reflections over the last 75 years, uh, make sure you visit my website after this show, wordsbyjdk.com. I'll be posting a show follow-up, and we'll talk. I'll have some links to some articles about him there. All right. And then, Dad, I did this uh, for you. Your hometown, you claim, is South San Francisco. Correct. Because right? that's where you grew well, up. Well, that's where I grew up mostly. Mostly. Okay. And we'll get into some of that. So I decided to look into what was going on in your hometown. And uh, there was some things going on, but, but uh, this was the most interesting thing that, was, that I read about in the news. Uh, there's a company in South San Francisco called Joyful Bakery. J-O-Y-F-U-L-L Bakery. Not sponsored, by the way. Did not exist when I was there. Okay. Okay. Well, that was a while ago. Okay. There, there you go. That's, an That's old, true. Made an old joke. All right. Nevertheless, they make... Joyful Bakery makes these cheese crisps, Parmesan cheese crisps, and they make so many that it costs them one million pounds of Parmesan cheese per year to put into those crisps. One million pounds. That's a lot of cheese. That's a lot of cheese. Now, you like Parmesan crisps. So do do I, right? So this seemed really ideal uh, to talk to you about. But then I I dug deeper into this and listened to this. So now I wanted to know how much cheese is that in in the world of Parmesan cheese. So- a wheel of real Italian Parmesan cheese, you know, those big wheels you see that get aged for a year, that weighs 88 pounds. Okay, so one of those weighs 88 pounds. So I measured that out, and so that means that Joyful Bakery every year goes through 11,365 wheels of Parmesan cheese. Now, that's a lot, and that's at $11 a pound on average. Okay, so okay. that's about $11 million that right. they have to spend. Right. So those better be some really good cheese crisps, right? They better. But here's the thing. I looked into this. Italy alone makes 3.6 million wheels of Parmesan cheese a year. That's a lot of cheese. That's a lot of cheese. <laughs> so that's 316,800,000 pounds of Parmesan cheese annually. And at $11 a pound, that's $3.5 billion in Parmesan cheese is produced every year just in Italy. That's more than the GDP of a number of global nations, actually. So, yeah. So that's like... They're like the Elon Musk of cheese, like everywhere, big. And that's just Parmesan. That's just Parmesan, right? Right. So, we, I don't know, maybe you and I need to go into the Parmesan cheese business, but I actually probably can't compete. What's the, what's the brand? Uh, Joyful? Joyful Joyful Bakery is what it's called out of South okay. San Francisco. So, um, we'll have to try those. I think so. <laughs> we'll have to find them. We'll have first. to find them. We have to look them up. Yeah, we we'll have to look right. them up. Right. Um, and by the way, it's a good time to mention that uh, my father uh, retired from uh, being a Lutheran pastor ten years ago, and he's been able to do a lot of things he wasn't able to do before, like reading and a lot of things. And one of his favorite things to do is look things up on the internet. So I know you're really excited to look things. I will. Up this I will thing. find it. You'll find it, and it's become so ubiquitous with how my dad spends his time looking things up that uh, his name has now become a verb. If you want to look something up on Google, we ask him to ken it. So you're going to go and it, ahead, Ken. And it works. It does it work. Works. It does work. And you embraced it, fortunately. 
Yes. So, all right. So let's let's jump in uh, really quick, Dad, and 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 give people a sense of, of who you are. First of all, thanks for coming on here, and and thanks at the outset. Uh, you have always uh, shown up for all the things that I've been been working on. This, as I mentioned, my book. He's commented on this podcast, uh, this show, uh, just about anything. And and you've been doing that my whole life. When I was playing sports as a kid, you always were either going to be at my game, whether it was soccer or basketball or softball, whatever it was. Or you were really clear about why you weren't going to make it, and uh, and then when you did see me, you always asked me about it right away. And so it was something that was always you were always really intentional about. And you were a busy man. I mean, your job was to go minister to other people. Uh, so I appreciate that. So th- thank you for that. But where did that come from? As way of introduction, where did that come from for you? And then we'll get into your who okay. you are. Um, I grew up in in India until I was about seven, mm-hmm. and I do not recall playing sports at all, mm-hmm. and uh, didn't pick up basketball until um, middle school. But I do recall that, at least from my perspective, it seemed like my parents did not take any interest in my sports at all. So I I recall growing up and making pretty much a conscious decision that if um, our kids played sports, that I would try to support that and be present uh, in whatever way I could. I was not necessarily the best uh, fan. Uh, <laughs> soccer games, I walked up and down the, the, the field because I couldn't sit still. Um, in basketball, uh, I remember uh, yelling at your games, um, which often were p- pretty poorly attended. Um, <laughs> so your voice resonated. So my voice resonated. <clears throat> yeah. People could say, while you were sitting on the bench, oh, your dad's here, J.D. <laughs> That's true. And they did. I actually remember one time one of my basketball coaches had already received one technical foul for complaining to the refs and couldn't get a second one. We thrown out, and he turned and motioned to you, and you yelled something and got the crowd a technical. Um so <laughs> I don't think I knew that. Yeah, no, you did. You <laughs> did. did. I? Okay. Uh, that was the greatest thing ever. I think you said to the ref something along the lines of, "If you have, hey ref, if you had one more eye, you'd be a cyclops." Something, something like, like that. that. Yes. Yeah, sounds about yeah. sounds about right. Well, and and that was uh, both for you and for our and for our daughter, for your sister. Uh, try to be supportive because I knew that was important, and it it also seemed like it was a way that I could participate. Uh, because I couldn't coach or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, so too busy. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's a that's a a good way to get started. And so uh, before we jump into uh, a little bit more of that, uh, let's go ahead and take uh, our first break. And we'll be back here on this show is all about you, with me, your host JDK Winnikin, and my dad, Ken Winnikin. We'll be back in a minute. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, 
but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everybody, to This Show is All About You. I'm your host, J.D.K. Winnikin, here with my first guest for this new format of the show, my dad, Pastor Ken Winnikin, retired Pastor Ken Winnikin. Uh, and uh, you heard in the uh, the break there a uh, commercial for Airway Science for Kids. Uh, that is the uh, gracious sponsor of this show. And uh, and they told you a little bit about them in, uh, in that uh, commercial. Uh, but they are a wonderful organization that helps underserved youth get involved in careers in aviation and aerospace. But they do it in such a way that the kids learn so much more about themselves and how to connect with their families and with their communities. Check them out at airside.org. And a big thank you to them for sponsoring this show. Okay, so Dad, let's uh, let's one of the things of this show is to kind of get under the surface of, of some of these conversations and to really connect on stuff. So let's give people a sense. You mentioned that you grew up in India, um, and you mentioned being a being a father. Let's get your let's get your stats in. How old are you? I am seventy six. Seventy six years old. Born I will in be seventy. Born in nineteen forty five. The okay. day after Christmas. Day after Christmas. My poor you. mother spent Christmas in the hospital. Well. Yeah, well, and, and but you have two great days back to back. Well, well, you had to work on Christmas as a pastor, right? That's true. So, so the next day, your day off was your birthday. Okay, and so and you were born. You, you said you lived in India and South San Francisco. Anywhere else? Uh, born, born in California, actually. But my dad was a missionary in India, so spent the first seven years there. When we came back, I grew up in South San Francisco. Spent various times uh, in school in different places. Uh, my first. Um, church assignment was three small churches in northern Nevada, and uh, J.D. and I took a road trip to to show him what they were like, and uh, uh, he thanked Anne that I left. (laughs) (laughs) Thanked my sister. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. and I went went from there to Hawaii, and then came from the Big Island to Huntington Beach, uh, Southern California, and then up here uh, to... Seattle area, and um, retired from there, and then have moved down into Pierce County. Gotcha. So, how long? How many years were you a, a pastor total? Uh, forty-one. Forty-one. And you've been and you've been married to mom for how long? Fifty-five years. No, wait, 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 wait. No, that's not right. Coming up. It is coming up. Yeah. Fifty-five in August. Had a little moment of panic on your face there for a second. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going, oh, no. Right. Well, and you mentioned that there's, there's me and my sister, my older sister, Anne. And Correct. And I have and a couple of grandkids from their side of the family. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. what else do you need to know about me? That's the basic well, stuff. Well, we're going to get to know more okay. because this all show right. is all about you. So oh, it is. You see about that? <laughs> see where that comes from? Yeah, exactly. I see that. So, uh, right. So, you know, we... T- you talked a little bit about, um, you know, growing up in India and your parents not, you know, being a part of your sports things and, and that type of thing. Um, we're, you and I have in common that we're both pastor's kids, right? That is you're, true. You're a pastor's kid, I am. And then going back a number of generations, uh, the Winnikins are full of, of pastor's kids, going back all the way to Germany and Holland in the, 16, in the 1600s. And we're, you know, we're one of the founding families of the Lutheran Church in, in the United States and that type of thing. Uh, 
I remember growing up as a way to kind of more know more about you. I grew up, and it's very distinct, and I tell people this all the time. You never pressured me, despite that family history and despite how much you clearly loved your job. You never pressured me to become a pastor like you. Where did that come from? Did that come from you feeling pressure to become one? Did you feel pressure to become a pastor? Did you feel that? Or was it something you felt really strongly about or almost called to do? What was, where did that come from? I don't, I don't think I felt pressure. There might have been some, but I don't, I can't really say that I felt any of it. I have four older brothers, the oldest of which never went into the ministry. He Mm -hmm. became a banker. Mm -hmm. So I had that precedent already. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think there was just this calling. I saw what my dad did. And quite frankly, most of what I saw was the pretty good stuff. I didn't see a lot of of the the difficulties, although I heard about them. But um, I liked what what he was doing i i believed um uh in what he was what he was preaching and what the church was teaching and i thought that was something that i could do and um so i really you know i really think i was called called to that mm-hmm. uh, i can't pinpoint a specific time or or place mm-hmm. but just in general yeah that was what i kind of always wanted to do was it was it the was it the idea of helping other people, speaking about these things to other people? Did um, and what were and what were the things the the behind the scenes things that you didn't know about? Um, did you did you experience those later? Are we talking about things like committee meetings? Or are we talking? Yes, yeah. It was the the administration stuff that oh. that I uh, I didn't really realize I should have taken a, a course in business administration or something mm-hmm. like that or sure. or group management or I don't know what. Um, but I liked the I liked the public um, ceremonies. I I liked um, being able to talk, mm-hmm. and actually have control over that because mm-hmm. in our in our church, you didn't really talk back to the preacher when he was <laughs> when, when he was talking. Interesting. Uh, and I liked dealing with people. I um, and doing the counseling or or weddings mm-hmm. or. Uh, baptisms with little kids. Um, I liked all of that stuff. And, and I saw that and, and I thought I was pretty good at it. And those were the things you really liked for your whole career. Correct. Like. Yeah. Correct. You really liked all right, that stuff. Right. That didn't change. Right. Right. Well, kind of looking back, you know, on it, there's, it's something that I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about in my own life. When we're young as pastors, kids, we're being asked to be aware of really big things, right? Big cosmic questions when you're a pastor's kid, right? About who God is and, and you know, sin and salvation and damnation and all these are, these are big things, you know, for, for kids to hold on to. Plus the sort of the, even if it's an unspoken expectation that, that you're a representative of your pastor's family, right? To right, the church, right, and, and right. And you have to be on that. Did, I, I could feel that pretty acutely, again, even though I don't think there was a lot of pushing in that direction from you. Did you feel that growing up too? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure I did. Um, there was sort of the you you had to you had to behave yourself because not only would it reflect poorly on you yourself, but um, look at what it would say about you know the pastor's family. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's talking about whatever it is and can't even keep his own mm-hmm. his own family together. Mm-hmm. You know why should I listen to him? Kind of thing, uh, and I that was never. 
that I can recall overtly said, mm-hmm. but it was just like, oh, it was covert. Just, just, it was covert and it was kind of like, just remember who you are kind of thing mm-hmm. and uh, be careful what you say and what you do. And Yeah. Yeah. I remember growing up with that. Whenever there was a new kid coming into the church, I always had to be the one to greet him. And I didn't like that. What yeah. I didn't like him. Right. Well, I, I don't want to. Why do I have to greet the kid? <laughs> you know, uh, but there was so there was that. So, you know, for me growing up, it sounds like you had some of this, too. The, the awareness of that is a lot for when you're a kid. Um, how did that affect you as a kid? What kind of kid were you? Like, how would you describe yourself as a kid in your teenage years? Personality uh, wise. <clears throat> personality wise. Uh, well, obviously, I um, maybe not. Obviously, I was much more reserved than I am now. I I would be really careful about what I said mm. and 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 all of that. I um I went to a different school than my neighborhood kids did. So I had a little bit of friendship with them, but I was pretty much isolated. So I uh for better or for worse, I learned to do a lot of things by myself. Ah. Ah. Yeah, I can relate to that as well. And is that where your model railroad obsession <laughs> came from did it come from that because that's a very solitary activity or it can be it, it is and and actually that's one of the things that i had to had to um work out um post recovery oh yeah I, yeah mm-hmm. um but uh it must have been in my genes perhaps uh went to when i went to school in india we rode the train to get there mm-hmm. there was a, a boarding school um, I had relatives who worked for the railroad. My grandfather worked for the railroad. Uh, even though I didn't know him, I knew about him. I had a roommate in high school who had a model railroad, and that's what got me hooked. Mm. I mean, it's his fault. <laughs> his first name was Vernon. Yeah. First thing pastors teach you is don't take responsibility yeah, for it's somebody else's fault. <laughs> But it's not, it seems like you've always been really meticulous with that. You like to you like to build things, and Correct. it would seem to me that would be an outgrowth potentially of kind of growing up that way, and you know having those having a lot of time to yourself and a lot of time in your own head. Yeah, and and I think it it did help me learn a lot of of, of alternate skills. I mean, electrical, uh, woodworking. Um, sort of arts and crafts kind mm-hmm. of thing. So it was an outlet for me that was um, healthy and safe, mm-hmm. but it also tended to keep me um, solo. Yeah. Because I still do it pretty much solo. Internal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, and there's always dangers to that. Yeah. Right, right with right. that. And so it, was something, it wasn't something when you were a kid that your dad did with you or anything? Uh, no. No. No, my dad did very little in... in terms okay. of that, like sports or whatever. Okay. He was awfully busy. So I pretty much learned to entertain myself. My sister and I did a lot of things together. Yeah, and you guys have been close. Ever yeah, since she's only two years younger than me, yeah. and my brothers are all at least nine years older yeah, or more. So there were two two different families. Yeah, it, it paints quite a picture, uh, Dad, and it's it's one that um, that I can relate to, and even though it was a really different uh, different context, uh, the nature of being a minister is you have to be gone a lot and you're pretty much constantly on call, right? I can't, I can't count how many times you'd be in the middle of something for your day and an emergency would come in. Somebody was in the hospital, somebody had been injured, somebody had died, or something was going on at the church that you had to really put aside what you were doing and step into that. And sometimes it changed the best laid plans, 
right? So correct. So correct. so there's a lot of that, but you've you've painted a, a picture of really what can happen a lot in um, ministers ministers families where that you can kind of get separated from people weirdly, even though your job is to minister to people. You can get you, there can some distance can develop, and I know some of that was in your training, right? I mean, in your training as right. a pastor, you were right. told. Some yeah. things that sound shocking to our ears today. I, I do recall when I was at the seminary that one of the things they told us, one of the one of the professors said, you really should not develop any close friendships with people in your congregation because otherwise, who would they come to as a pastor? Which seemed to imply, in, in retrospect, that you can't have a good friend who would also see you as a pastor. Right. But um, it... it it was there, and the implication was you had to be careful uh, who you were close friends with. So, right. so you had to be you had to be careful. I had who you to really be. connected, and yeah. and to say nothing about who you would confide in, correct? Who you would go to, correct? And so it just feeds into that kind of solo um, isolation right. thing. Right. And it took it took some significant work to break through that. For me, yeah, you've you've hinted at that. I think I think that's that's a good place to go next. You know, the the other thing to paint the picture for anybody who didn't grow up this way, uh, not only is a is a pastor uh, on call for emergencies, uh, he or she needs to be the peacekeeper for anything that's going on in the church, anything that's going on between members, any debates that are going on with the growth of the church. You're expected to be a counselor and a therapist, pretty much on call, uh, when they need to be. Uh, you're expected to serve others over yourself. Um, and at least that's the implication, right? Maybe that's not overt, um, but it demands a lot. And so you mentioned that isolation. You mentioned that you had a lot of work to do. Um, uh, and we're, we're sort of coming in on that, but it sounds like the toughest part and correct me if I'm wrong. The toughest part for you was that isolation was, was it that kind of, were, were there, was there a weight on you of those expectations collectively? Did that ever bother you? Was that one of the reasons why it was so isolating? I don't know which was the chicken and which was the egg. Mm. Um, you know, was I was I um, inclined to isolation and therefore, you know, I I stayed there, um, or was it that that created that situation for me? Yeah. I'm I'm not sure. Um, I think being being as a kid growing up fairly isolated. That was what I was um, used to, I suppose. Um, That's what I learned to handle. So um, that doesn't make it necessarily good or bad, but but for me, it it, uh, frequently uh, took me away from priority things like Mm -hmm. family stuff, which is maybe why the sports and things were so so important because it got me out of that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, you mentioned uh, just a little while ago, you know, um, having some tough lessons and you mentioned recovery, you know, so we should we should mention that. Uh, that was a big change for you, wasn't it? Uh, confronting confronting addiction successfully and learning not just about the addiction itself, but even beyond that, how to open up as a human being, how to connect. Correct. How to all of that. That's what you're referring to. Right. We won't get into the specifics of it. Right. But. Right. Um I I do think that would be one of the one of the transforming uh, events in my life, yeah. um, because I I learned to to kind of get out of myself mm-hmm. to let let somebody else in. Not that I didn't um, a little bit, but um, 
I also, I think, developed um, more empathy for people who yeah. struggled with mm-hmm. other kinds of things that I never had to deal with mm-hmm. and recognized, hmm, in some ways I had it pretty good, even though I was dealing with part of things, part of my life that was really pretty destructive. Yeah. But I think that, that well, I know that it transformed my relationship with you and my wife mm-hmm. and our daughter. Absolutely, it did. And then, of course, you know, to, to kind of tie this in the other end, when I hit my own problems with addiction, I knew right where to go, and you knew right how to help me yeah. when the time came. It was, it was one of those times when I, when I did have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> At least the starting point. Uh, correct. Yeah. And I can say a lot of the same things that you just did. I mean, it, in terms of learning how to empathize and to connect with myself and with others and, and to kind of start learning how to sift through what was true and what wasn't. Correct. When you sit in rooms with, with other people in recovery and you hear the stories they have, um, you, you can't help but recognize that your own experience is only one of many and um, that everybody's journeys are filled with challenges, uh, whether they're in those rooms or not. It helped me feel more like, as time went by, more as a human being. It's one of the reasons why I do this show, is because connections has become so important to me, connecting with myself and what matters and connecting with others in what matters. And so, so that was a transformational event, series of events for you and me as well, and one of the right. reasons why we could sit here and talk like that. Right. Okay. Well, and so, well, that's big. So with all of that taken together, what was the toughest part of the job being a pastor, and what did you love most about it? What was the toughest part? Toughest part, or or the part that I liked the least, was business meetings. <laughs> I, I don't know that they were the toughest, but they were the most frustrating because it often seemed like we didn't we didn't get anything done. Mm. I think that the the toughest part was to feel like. I had said something or done something to try to help somebody, mm-hmm. and it it um, they either didn't really appreciate it or they did the exact opposite or they did something that was destructive for them, and so you feel like oh i f- if I didn't fail at least i I didn't do a very good job of of convincing them that would be particularly in the areas of counseling and stuff, yeah, yeah um. Maybe another way of looking at it, too. When when people came to church, what were you hoping they would leave with? And maybe that's maybe just right there. What were you hoping they would leave with? For sure, I would want them to leave feeling like they had some worth, some value, that God loved them, that um, there was a, you know, a, a sense in a purpose in their life. I mean, there was a reason for them to go off to work the next day or whatever whatever that might be. So I would think, you know, to, to sense that whoever they are and wherever they found themselves, that um, they were accepted and loved for who they were. Mm-hmm. I would think that would, that would be the main thing. <laughs> yeah. Know. That would be the main thing. That would be the, wow. I mean, I, I would like them to like my sermon, too, of course. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Right. Spend all that time working on it. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty powerful. Uh, you know, and one of the things that, that has always been notable for me about your approach to all this is you've never shied away from saying, I don't know. 
when no, somebody's because, brought you tough questions? Because there there were a lot of things I found out that I I don't know, sure. and and I didn't I couldn't go and ken something <laughs> readily. I'd have to find a book yeah. or or have to know which book to find the information. So or it might be something somebody has to find out for themselves. Correct. Yeah. yeah a lot you, of times it was there was no way I was going to know yeah. an answer to that. So. Yeah, having to encourage them for that. Mm-hmm. Um, Man, there's a there's a lot we can cover. Um, you know, moving a little bit into you know some of the some of the larger things. As a, as a pastor, you you're expected to not only be on the personal level, be aware of all those things and be involved in those things, but you know, people bring you questions about what's going on in the world and and you know everything from politics to social issues to things like that. So you kind of have to be, you're, and and even if you don't want to be connected to those things or aware of those things, you're expected to have something to say about it. Um, I know for you, being shaped and kind of coming of age in the civil rights era, era of Vietnam, was helped shape a big part of your kind of view of some of these big issues that we address you know, today that we address. Correct. So what are some of those things? Uh, well, first first one, the one that I'm, I'm most aware of because it happened the earliest. When we came back from India, um, I recall being in California and reading about the fact that there were some parts of the United States where um, colored people had to drink from a separate faucet and could not go into the same restroom and could not eat in the same restroom uh, restaurants or stay in. And I was absolutely shocked by that. I mean, I was seven years old or eight years old. I was shocked by that because I grew up in India and played with Indian kids and Color made no difference. It absolutely made no difference um, to me or I could tell for them. Um, And so racism, you know, just, just, I don't like to use the word hatred because I don't like the word hatred, but I I just never understood it. I despised it as a kid and uh, I got in. I didn't get in trouble, but I'd get into arguments once in a while with people over mm-hmm. over racial issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so color, and I think later on as I grew up, um, gender issues. My mom uh, worked out outside the home, but only later in her life. But those particular things, um, and then the political issues in the 60s, I was, I, I didn't go out on protests and stuff, but... Um, I protested in my own way against the the Vietnam War after I after I saw, you know, only certain people got drafted mm-hmm. or had to show up mm-hmm. uh, depending on the money that you had mm-hmm. and uh lives being lost for what I thought were were um not very justifiable reasons. Mm-hmm. So combination of that was the mid 60s, so that was um Martin Luther King. Yeah. I, I don't recall um, a lot of connection to that because I was in pretty much white communities. Yeah. But I remember reading and, and agreeing and being um, just um, emotionally torn apart by Kennedy's assassination and then his brother and then Martin Luther King. And here we've got people who are, from my perspective, were working to, to improve um, not only racial relationships, but but uh, uh, relationships of, of the 
male and female and all of that. So really bothered me. It's been been true in my life the whole time. I've, mm-hmm. I, I do not understand any kind of uh, prejudice based on externals um, kind of feelings. It's kind of a weird thing if you think about it, right? It it's, is. It's, it's, you know, on skin color or language difference, you know, it's, it's not about eye color or hair color or height yeah. or, you know, anything like that. It's, and, and I grew, we grew up, I think, you know, uh, Ann and I uh, certainly grew up with that, what you just mentioned, you know, as part of that larger conversation, you know, and part of sort of our larger identification as a family. Um, and, and I also know, uh, and this is sort of a cue to jump into this too, uh, you got some pretty strong feelings around what some people are calling Christian nationalism that's been sweeping across this country more and more. Um, do you, yeah, I don't do you like that say, either. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> here's here's the things that Ken doesn't, things like. That Ken doesn't like. <laughs> I don't well, like important. racism. I don't like. Uh, uh, I don't like. It's uh, the it's the identification of the Christian faith with the American mission. Correct. Yeah. When when you take. Um, uh, Christianity, from my perspective, when you take Christianity and you wrap it in a specific flag of a nation, and and I think I would feel that same way if I was in a different country or if I was sure. a citizen of a different country, mm-hmm. you you um, diminish the faith, I believe, mm-hmm. by making it um, specific and to a, a particular political point of view or a political uh, mm-hmm. environment. And... Um, it seems to me Christianity is meant to be something that that bridges all those um, ethnic and and cultural and um, racial and political kinds of boundaries, or at least should. And ties directly back to what you said with people walking out of church to know that they're loved just as they are. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Regardless of who they are and where where they came from and what language they speak and what mm-hmm. color they are. Right. So, yeah. So. So, wow. You must uh, if you pay attention to the news very much, you must you must spend your time being pretty frustrated, I would think. Uh, Frustrated or angry or um, I sit and go, but don't you know what that says? (laughs) Haven't you ever read that part? Mm. You know, Mm. and, you know, I I don't have a bully pulpit, but uh, it's probably a good thing. (laughs) I don't know. Well, I appreciate certainly appreciate you saying that on on this show. So let's take another quick break, uh, and then we'll come back, and we'll have a couple more things to chat about, and then we'll wrap up the show. Uh, be, right, be right back on this show is all about you. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. 
Welcome back, everybody, to this show is all about you finishing up my discussion with my dad, Pastor Ken Winnikin, uh, on the show. And uh, sort of last last question, uh, Dad, to kind of wrap up everything that we've been talking about, kind of put a bow on it. Uh, you're 76, as you mentioned, your father and your grandfather. What are you still learning at this point about being a man? First of all, it's not um, it, it's not a position that everybody does exactly the same way. Mm. I guess I would say that. <laughs> you know, I mean, in my particular situation, when I retired, one of the things I realized was that um, my wife, your mom, did an awful lot of work around the house while I was busy out doing stuff. And so now that I'm home, I get to be the house mom or the house dad. Right. And that's fine. I mean, I actually enjoy doing that. She still does a lot of the menu choosing and things, but... But I feel like it's it it's opened up the the fact that I can be a stay-at-home dad and a uh, and a husband and all of that in a little bit different way than I was when I was working. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and maybe that's because I have the freedom to do that. Right. Uh, in terms of you know being a man, I think it's being open to. Um, Men and women and different uh, lifestyles and different um, uh, gifts and to to appreciate those and to recognize those. And sometimes being a man means you're physically strong, but sometimes it means you're um, emotionally there. I try to I try to do that better than I used to be mm-hmm. instead of being so absent and mm-hmm. um, and and also learning to say it's it's either I don't know or I was wrong <laughs> <laughs> you know that's all right to do that <laughs> all right okay. all right yeah wow yeah. that's that's great that's great yeah absolutely um, being able to own one's own mistakes correct uh, and do what you can to clean it up right yeah. right yeah absolutely Okay, uh, really appreciate all of that. Now let's hit. Uh, let's kind of do a lightning round of questions here at the end. Okay, and I give I'll, people. Some I'll money. try to talk yeah. quickly. No, this is fine. This is fine. Um, but what comes to mind when I ask you these questions? Just boom. Just don't even think about it. Okay. What's a book that you've read that you think everybody should? The Book Thief. The Book Thief. Amazing. By book. Suzak. Yes, absolutely. Z u s a k. Yep. Just because of. Because it tells a story uh, of of one girl's experience um, and how it was pretty much transformative. Yeah, it yeah. was, and it, and it's narrated by death, I believe. Yes, I think that's correct. Okay, uh, what's a place that you visited that you think everyone should see? You asked me this before, and what flashed was Salzburg, Austria. Salzburg, Austria. I like Mozart. <laughs> but I also think, you know, it's it's uh, just a beautiful area and uh okay. Yeah. Okay. What's a what's a dish, a food that sounds good to you anytime you hear it mentioned or it's offered? Uh any any Indian curry. <laughs> I believe that. I believe that. <laughs> so it's like a comfort food for you, I would think. Yeah, it is. And and uh your mom, my wife makes a great curry. Yes, she does. So. Yes, she does. Uh what TV show or movie stops your channel surfing dead in its tracks? Oh, a TV movie. Oh, I was thinking like... Um, or it could be TV or movie. Oh, okay. Um, um, 
what's the one about the in the jail? The Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption. Ah, yes. Thank okay. you. The Shawshank. Yeah. Why is that? Uh, it was it was scary, but it had a good ending. Yes, it did. Don't give it away because no, there's lots no. of people maybe haven't no. seen it. Yes, it did. Um, what was the best concert you've ever been to? Oh, that's easy. Uh, Margaret and uh, my wife and I, Margaret, uh, we were in college. She was in Chicago. I went up to visit her. We bought tickets to the McCormick Place in 1966, and we listened to Ray Charles and the Righteous Brothers oh, on the same program. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and th- this is the widest you've smiled all day long, by oh, the yeah. way. And you've been smiling this whole time. I know. I, I, I love both, both of those groups. Oh, man. That's amazing. Ray Charles for all of his struggles. <laughs> amazing. Just oh, amazing. Absolutely. Okay. That's, wow, you're lucky. I'm envious. Uh, what's next on your bucket list? On my bucket list. I tend to have a bucket list that is full of uh, railroad places. <laughs> not always, but, but so believe it or not, one I would like to go to is called the Nevada Northern Railway. It's in eastern uh, Nevada, right on the Utah border. Basically, it's a 1960 railroad uh, that has been frozen in time. Oh, man. I have this feeling that if anybody in the family is going to be going with you on that trip, you might be, be the only <laughs> you might be, be the only one who will. <laughs> and I will. I will go with you. If that's what you want to do. All right. Thank you so much, Dad, for uh, for coming on. Uh, and I want to go ahead. And how much time do I have, Eric, to finish this up? Just a couple minutes. Oh, 40 seconds. Wow. I don't have much time. So I'm going to have to wrap this up. Uh, thanks for joining me on this show is all about you. Please check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com. Uh, you can pick this uh, episode up at Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else. Thank you so much to Hubbard Radio Seattle, to Eric Ryder here in the studio, uh, the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids, original theme music, Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media, and <coughs> special thanks this week uh, creatively to the Winnikin family, Julia Cannell, Stacey Heller, Seth Mormon, Eric Crema, Katie Beck, and Tawny Santabria. And to wrap us up, everybody, I'll finish us off with a haiku sending you into your week. For fathers and sons and anyone else, really, connection is key. Thanks, everyone. Chins up.